Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with David Kime, the delightful David Kime. He's the Senior Vice President and General Counsel of Global Corporate Affairs, or Legal Affairs at SAS or SAS. And it's a marvellous discussion. David takes us way back in his journey from the time when he started practising law when he was an entertainment lawyer. They got a call from a recruiter and the recruiter said something along the lines is this next job is a job for life. And it actually was. That was back in 1998 when David joined SAS and worked his way up to his current position. Lots of learnings in this discussion. David's also adjunct professor at the University of North Carolina, as well as doing uh, on the board of directors of uh, T3D Therapeutics, whose focus is looking on curing Alzheimer's. So it's a it's a marvelous discussion. I really enjoyed it. And as I said, David's a delightful person. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. David Kime, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. Can't wait for our discussion. Thanks so much. It's good to be here. Fantastic. Now I'm not sure if you heard any episodes, David, but I usually like to launch in and ask a little bit about the David Kime story. You're obviously right now the Senior Vice President and General Counsel at SAS, have been there for more than 20 years. Take me back to the early days. What got you into law in the first place and perhaps some kind of pivotal moments early in your career? Sure. So it's kind of weird, kind of strange. Actually, Patrick Henry got me into the law in the first place. I grew up in southeastern Virginia on the east coast of the United States, and right down the road is Colonial Williamsburg, which was the colonial capital of the colony of Virginia. And Patrick Henry was a statesman and a lawyer. And when I was in fourth grade, uh, we had a field trip to Colonial Williamsburg, which is a historical park there. And they had a movie all about Patrick Henry. And I was bitten with the bug and had to know more about he, you know, he delivers this very stirring speech that kind of inspires the war for independence, which ends with these words, give me liberty or give me death. And I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, pretty. Even as a fourth grader. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that sort of started the ball rolling in that direction. And, and so I pursued it ever since. I mean, from fourth grade on, I knew this is what I wanted to do. You know, it's funny. Isn't it funny that when you're that young and something, I know when I was raising my children, just thinking about influencing moments like that, even as young as the fourth grade. It's pretty incredible. That's why I just think with children, exposing them to as much as possible because you actually just don't know what's going to land and what's going to resonate. So it's th- th- those stories are incredible. And I think it's just keeping that perspective, especially as I said, when, you know, raising children or when you become a grandparent, which I think you're, is you're much wiser and then you recognize those kind of influencing moments. Exactly right. It's, it's funny because you really don't notice them at the moment, right? It, you don't, it, when you think about how pivotal that kind of a thing pushes you in a direction where you pursue and you go down trails in your life. What about the early part of your career, perhaps even before you started at SAS? Anything kind of that stands out as kind of crossroads for you, again, pivotal moments? 
Yeah, you know, well, I would have to say probably the most pivotal moment of anything in my entire life was meeting my wife. And we met in kindergarten. Well, I reckon that's a first on the show. I'm not sure I've heard yet of any of my guests that their true love was from kindergarten. What a fantastic story. And I have to say, I was slow to catch up. I was was in like 10th grade before I realized that this was probably the right thing. But our moms really worked hard to... uh, To make it happen. (laughs) Exactly. So she's been along with me for the for the entire journey. You know, well, but an- another thing, when I was in college, my senior year in college, I was the chairman of the Student Activities Board. And in that role, we programmed all of the entertainment on campus. And it was, was Gardner-Webb University is a small school in the middle of nowhere. And so if you wanted people to stay around on the weekends, you had to have stuff going on. And so I got to work with all of these entertainment contracts and agents and acts and booking bands and dances and movies. And it was, it really whetted my appetite and really pushed me down to this entertainment law track, which then, you know, ended up being my first job with a, with a television network. Yep. Uh, And I said you you had five years there, so not quite the groundwork for transition into a company like SAS. so So that was interesting. Well, that's an interesting story. So IFE was International Family Entertainment, Inc., and it owned a basic cable television network here, the Family Channel. But then it went on to buy. It was a very entrepreneurial company, public company, but entrepreneurial. And in that five and a half years I was there, we, we did all kinds of things. We bought stuff left and right and sold stuff left and right. And and at the end, then it got acquired by News Corp. So it was a very large transaction. So I had, you know, a couple of months to figure out what it is I wanted to do with my life. I didn't want to go to New York with News Corp. I didn't want to go to LA with the new family channel. We had three children at that time, one on the way, and uh, I wanted to live somewhere, you know, more family friendly than that. And so SAS actually had a video game production subsidiary and and it was thinking about going public at the same time. And so you know, they had a need for a lawyer with a strong entertainment law background and a strong public company background. And there's just not that many of us around. So I came in and was the general counsel of that business unit for a while. And things happened. SAS is not really in the business of video games. It's a very different business than business software. And so the decision was taken to sell, well, to get out of the that business. And so I packaged it up and sold it for the company. And then, you know, kind of created a position at, at, at Greater SAS. I was going to say, but you didn't sell yourself as part of that package. Okay. I was not part of the deal, no. <laughs> so you've been at SAS for more than 20 years. Can you kind of break down, the, I suppose, into a couple of periods, perhaps, the kind of different challenges during your journey? Because no doubt the challenges back, you know, say in the early days are very different from the challenges right now. So I'd like to get a bit of a sense of that. Can you break that down for us? Sure. Yeah. The, the earliest thing I can think of was, you know, coming from a public company that, you know, is used to dealing with institutional shareholders and very successful, moving to SAS, incredibly successful, much bigger than IFE was. You know, SAS does, you know, three and a half billion in revenue a year. I can't remember what IFE was making at the time, but its market cap was less than a billion dollars. So it was a much smaller, but very successful still. And, you know, SAS is a company that had, you know, 15,000 employees in 60 countries and, but closely held and now for 45 years has been closely held, you know, two principal shareholders 
it's a very different universe. And, you know, you don't have the, the market pressures that a public company does. So you can do things differently. You can take a much longer term view. You can, if the owners care about, you know, the creature comforts of the employees, they can, they can do that without having to answer to shareholder activist groups and things. So, so that was, you know, there was a culture world, cultural difference that was stark and, you know, just getting used to, and there's also, you know, because it's such a much bigger company, the layers of bureaucracy that just have grown over 30 years, 40 years, it's just a very different look and feel. So that was different. And, it, you know, you had to sort of get used to the fact that that's just the way it was. If they wanted to, you know, I thought at one point we were the largest consumer of M&Ms in the world, largest corporate consumer of M&Ms in the world, because we have these break rooms all over campus. We have this big, huge campus here in, in Cary. It's over a thousand acres with a bunch of buildings and 7,000 employees are housed here. And, you know, we eat a lot of M&Ms. <laughs> that is hilarious. So I can imagine that the letter you get from M&M, congratulations, Sass. You are actually our largest consumer of our product. That is hilarious. Tell me about how would you compare the challenges you might have had in building a team, legal team, legal function, building that out in the early days compared to the kind of challenges you've got today? And if you're happy to share some of those, you know, what your top like three priorities are today, that'd be great. Well, you know, SAS was really has been a leader in employee relations and taking care of employees. And so, you know, we didn't have because we're not public and we're closely held, we don't have, you know, big stock option plans and things like that. So we had other things that attracted people and and they were, you know, based on a little more of sort of work-life balance issues. And, you know, we have a little infirmary, uh, basically almost like a whole hospital on campus where if you're sick, you go there, they take care of you. We have childcare, you know, at the time that that began, SAS kind of was on the bleeding edge of those kinds of benefit packages. And, you know, the rest of the world is sort of caught up. So, so it was, it was when, when I came to work here, the headhunter who was recruiting me called me and said, I found the place for you. This is a place where you're going to want to stay until you retire. You're, this is not going to be a stepping stone to something else. This is one of the greatest places on earth. And she was right. It is. But other companies have sort of understood then what that formula looks like and they've caught up. And so it is the competition for good talent has become, I mean, we're feeling it. We, I feel it. Attracting and keeping the right folks is not as easy as it used to be. That's a challenge. And I, I can imagine the pitch has to be different today. I'm not sure how this is a job for life pitch would land today, presumably it doesn't land that well, so it's got to be different. You're exactly right. I mean, because I think most people coming out of law school expect to hopscotch around and finding a place where you land and be comfortable and stay is not, I mean, it's just not a priority. Interesting. So, so what is it that when you're looking to attract talent in the kind of competitive market like today, what is it that you're what are you targeting? Is it the experience? Is it what, what are you promoting? I should say the experience. The tell me a little bit about that in this environment. You know, I would say that the hidden—it's not all that hidden—but uh, the, the kind of the secret weapon that we have is that the people that work here are just fantastic, and that's a that's a big deal. And you want to go to work with people that you want to go to work with. I mean, you want to hang out with them. You want to be with them. You don't want to spend, you know, be 
tied to a job with people that you really wish you wouldn't have to spend more time with. Yeah, there's there's nothing worse. And I think we've done a really good job of creating a corporate culture that helps to keep them interested. You know, we have lots of very interesting work to do and lots of interesting people to do it with. And so that is a selling point that that I think is it's kind of a soft point, but it is, you know, in addition to all the benefits and, you know, we do pay competitively and all those things too as well. Yeah. And the, the culture bit, it's until you've actually experienced great culture and not great culture, it's sometimes, especially if you're in junior in your career, it's, it's hard to actually really understand and know what to look for too, because you don't have the experience. But Dave, you're absolutely right. There's nothing, nothing better than having a super culture. I talk about that all the time. Yeah, and it comes from the top and there's nothing more disheartening. <laughs> Than they're going to work, work where the you know, where where you're not a cultural fit. So it's funny. I do hear about it spoken about more and more. And I think being able to then working out ways how to actually communicate and deliver and get people to understand people that haven't actually experienced it. That's um I think that's a secret weapon if you can do that because it is top of mind actually for people with you know, wherever you are in your career. Any other particular challenges today that kind of keep you up at night in the running of your legal department? You know, not really. That's really my, my number one challenge at the moment is attracting and retaining. You know, it's more and more quite a trick. And I work really hard to try to make sure that the place is attractive, that it is meeting the needs of the people that, that we want to keep on around. David, you're also an adjunct law professor at the University of North Carolina Law School. Tell us a little bit about that and what are the the why and what are some of the takeaways, some of the lessons that you're hoping your students end end up with from taking your class? I I kind of, uh, (laughs) the way I found my, my way into that position was the dean of the law school, a colleague of mine referred me to him. He taught an M&A class. And in this M&A class, he likes to bring in guest speakers to talk about specific areas. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an, I'm an M&A specialist and I, I have this tax background. And so he, he wanted somebody to come in and talk about the tax aspects of mergers and acquisitions. And he'd had some really heavy duty tax CPAs come in and, you know, they were really in the weeds technically. And great party guests, actually. Get a CPA, tax experts in the weeds. They're, they're fantastic party guests. Have I, have I got that right? <laughs> people ask me, I, I have this advanced degree in, in taxation, so an LLM in taxation, and people say, well, why did you do that? Because you don't practice tax law. I said, well, it's for the, for the party banter. So anyway, I went and I did this, I did this class for him, and, and then I got a call a couple of weeks later saying, hey, look, we have an opening in this course drafting of contracts, not, not substantive contracts, but the actual mechanics of drafting contracts. And would you be interested in in teaching this? And I said, well, yes, I would. I mean, I, I draft contracts all day long. So that would be great. You know, teaching is quite an art. It's it's not just standing up in front of a group of people and vomiting out information at them. It's, I, I, again, I, my wife is a, is a professional educator and I've never had more respect for her. I mean, I always have had respect for her, but never more than after starting this gig because it is not easy. And it's a challenge to communicate the information in a way that is valuable, that meets all the criteria of the university and of the ABA, and and at the same time teaches 
you know, I've seen so many poorly drafted contracts in my day. And, you know, so I, I one of the things I want to do is to help them avoid some common pitfalls. Mostly, I just want them to be practical and, and be business minded. And because I've seen a lot of over lawyered contracts, too, that are impractical. Well, and that's, that's the general rule, isn't it? It's typically over-lawyered and impractical as opposed to short and brief and, and perhaps missing some of the points. It's typically on the verbose side. So trying to get the students to be more practical. Yeah, so help them to understand that, you know, you're trying to solve a business problem for a business. You know, the, the drafting of contracts that I'm talking about is it's, a, it, it's commercial, complex commercial contracts. So, you know, there's a business problem a lay person comes to you and explains their business problem. Their business problem is they want to have this relationship with this other party. And you have to memorialize this mystical meeting of the minds. And, and so what I want to do is give them a toolbox that they can use to sort of put this jigsaw puzzle together. And there's a number of, of contract concepts and then the parts of the contract. And you fit these things together in a way that creates something that should be elegant and readable and 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 then represent your client's point of view on what this relationship is supposed to look like and make sure that they've got a remedy if it doesn't look like that. It's funny, isn't it? You're there at law school learning these skills, but you, you, these skills, but you've got no real context. So even when you're trying to explain what the business, you've never experienced it before. So, so we teach and we're taught law school in the wrong part, the wrong time, and we've got no. And I suppose that's not just law; that's you know that that's probably medicine and correct when you don't have the actual. And if you had that context, every you know, it would just be so much easier for things to fall in place. But that, that's just the that's just the way of the world. David, really interested here. You're a board. You're on the board of directors for T Three T Therapeutics. Um, and that's a company focusing on no, novel approaches in relation to the treatment of Alzheimer's. Tell us a little bit about that. So one of our owners is invested in that company. And so as part of his investment, he gets the right to name a director. And I'm one of those directors that has been named. It's an exciting company. They have a drug that looks, they're working on a drug that looks very promising for Alzheimer's treatment. And Alzheimer's is such a devastating, debilitating disease. And it affects not only the patient that's affected by it, but, you know, there's a perimeter of folks that are also affected. And so I'm encouraged by the science behind the drug that T3D is, is researching. It attracted the attention of, you know, one of our principal owners because he's the kind of person who cares about these kinds of things. And believes that he, you know, if he has the means to help with something like this, he ought to do it. And so I'm very, you know, it's kind of, it's an honor, honestly, to, to be a part of this, even though my part is such a small, you know, I'm, I'm on the board and I kind of help keep the corporate stuff in play. But just, I have a lot of respect for the scientists and the physicians and te other technologists that are actually doing the work here. We've gotten a little stymied. You know, the pandemic has impacted our ability to complete the clinical trials, but we're, we're on track again, finally now, and are working towards uh, trying to move it forward. And I'm hopeful that we'll get, you know, really good news. As I say, there, it looks very promising. Yeah. Look, the whole world is hopeful <laughs> and certainly anyone that's, that, that, that's been impacted by the disease. So that, that's fantastic. Dave, I want to wrap up with some questions that I love to ask my guests. What's the hardest thing that you've ever done that you're prepared to share? 
personal or professional? I think managerially, you know, letting someone go, that is a hard, hard thing. I try to, especially if you invest in the relationships, and even if you know it's the best thing for the company, it's the best thing for the person, that's that's a very difficult thing. Personally, I think both the hardest but the most rewarding thing is the is is the family connection. You have father and husband. We have six children. That's a lot. I'm three and I'm exhausted. <laughs> six. What, what what are the age ranges now? Age range oldest is now thirty, and the youngest has turned eighteen. So we we have a, we have a grandchild on the way. First grandchild is expected in June. Well, kudos to you and your wife. Thank you. It's a lot of work. Yeah, that's a truckload of work. It is. I mean, having kids is not, you just have kids and go on with life. No, no, no. It changes things. Yeah, but I'm glad to hear, and it's, you know, it's often the case that it is, it's the hardest, but the most rewarding. It is. Yep. Indeed. Personally, my preference is as they get, the older they get, the, the more fun I have. I'm not sure if that's just the recent memories that is the most powerful, but I think it's just, certainly for me, the, relationship building and just at a different level but all the phases are fun but the, the later it gets the, the the more fun for me i think i agree with you we we have a lot of fun together we you know our two oldest daughters are, are married now and they come back a lot you know we they live only a mile and a half in one direction mile in another direction so we get to see each other quite a bit and we do have a very good time it's never quiet though i can tell you yeah, no. well, well, you should have thought of the quiet before the six kids. I think if that was a priority. Tell me anything that you've spent too much time worrying about in the past, which on reflection is not time well spent. Yeah, I think worrying about things that you can't change is that's time not well spent. I mean, I, I've come to understand that there's just it's kind of a losing proposition. It's just, you know, it's just a waste of time. That's funny. I, I talk about now, what can you control and what can't you control? Focus on the stuff you control. You're absolutely right. The stuff that you can't control, that's all that's out of your control. That's the stuff. There's no point spending any time worrying about. Anything that keeps you up at night now? You know, not too much. As I've gotten older, I find that I sleep. You sleep better. Pretty easily. <laughs> You know, I, there's you know the normal things. I, I you know our our politics is so polarized that's disappointing. I'm not sure it's any worse than it ever has been, but it is. Yeah, I don't really spend a lot of time worrying about it, but it is. You know, I wish I wish it was different. Stock market's pretty volatile. That again doesn't really keep me up at night, but I wish it was different. I wish it was just a smooth trajectory up. I was just going to say no. I, I not not too many things really keep me up at night. Yeah, well, that's a, I was just going to say that's a great position to be in. And on that note, David Kime, thank you so much for joining me. I've had a blast speaking to you. Thanks very much, David, for joining me. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit.com. P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.